0: I'm always uh, inspired and touched when Bonnie begins her talks, and she always starts very sweetly with saying, Dear Sangha or something very warm, love that. But she also often reflects on the Buddha and just how inspired and how much she loves him and and his teachings. Um, I always get a little hit of Mudita when she does that. It kind of brightens my heart as well because I feel the same. You know, that we are sitting here today because of the brilliance and the influence of this man who was just a human being who lived about 2,600 years ago and gave these amazing, radical and unique teachings that have survived to this day of flowering. And I I don't think... um, We often try not to give you guys any news of what's happening out in the world. It's much of a muchness, nothing much changed. So I don't think this piece of news will radically alter your retreat. But today, uh, Facebook introduced five new reaction emoticons. That was the big news of today. (laughs) Made a lot of headlines. So as well as saying like, you can also say love or sad. Or you can say, wow. So I just thought of that as like, oh, the Buddha, wow. (laughs) It's pretty, and love, and like, but uh, it's amazing that we are the beneficiaries of that life that was lived so many years ago and the power of those teachings rippling through all these years. And I think we've talked a little bit about you know the life of the Buddha. He taught for 45 years, 26 volumes that we have in English compiled of his teaching. But he did repeat himself a lot in those teachings. Um, and so we do too. Especially in a long retreat, um, you might find that we're sort of circling around the same themes. And as we think about what would be useful to talk about, it's like, well, I'll talk about that. Well, I was going to talk about that. Well, it's a bit different. I'm talking, and you know, by the time we get to the end of a month, we've talked about a lot of things already, right? It's like, what do we talk about now? And I especially saw that these few evenings last night. Uh, Aaron talking about equanimity, I'm going to talk about intention tonight, Guy Kama, they're really interwoven, Um, but they're all out of um, what I see are three ways of framing the Buddha's teachings, like his biggest hits, you could say. I mean, I'm sure if I was on another night, I might come up with a different list, but this is what came to me as I was thinking about what to talk about this evening, that what we've been talking about over and over again, this month, next month, all Dharma talks, uh, some variation, some weaving of these three, three themes. And the first is about mindfulness, just how important it is and how powerful it is, how we cultivate it. The, so all the practices we've been teaching and talking about how to cultivate mindfulness, but also... The functioning of mindfulness, which is to lead to insight, lead to more wisdom, ultimately to lead to freedom. Then another big theme you could put in the basket of dependent origination, which we haven't given a whole talk or discourse on, but Guy talked about the heart of it the other night in his talk on unentangled knowing. And dependent origination is this vast teaching with 12 links and what the Buddha does in it is deconstruct suffering. He looks at the factors, the the ingredients, the conditions that create suffering in our lives. But the important thing about that teaching is through understanding that is also the cure or the end to suffering. And Guy particularly pointed to that place we often um, invite you to practice with. He called it, Resting in the space between feeling and craving. Seeing how with contact, any contact that arises, there's the resultant feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. When we can rest there with mindfulness, it doesn't have to tumble into craving, clinging, becoming birth, old age sickness, death, suffering. That possibility is revealed there. When we understand that, that um, teaching, that pointing with wisdom, with mindfulness, as Ajahn Buddhadasa says, it then becomes the radiant wheel. Instead of the wheel that just sort of, it's a description of samsara, just cycling around from ignorance to suffering over and over again, it becomes the radiant wheel. Or as Christina Feldman says, to me the significance of this whole description of dependent origination is that if we understand the way our world is created, we also then become a conscious participant in that creation. These key words in this, all pointing to these teachings that I'm highlighting tonight. And then this third teaching is, um, again, talking about what the Buddha taught and uh, um, practiced that was so unique, was a new understanding of karma. And again, karma, K-A-M-A, is just the Pali way of saying what we're more used to, the Sanskrit karma, where it has an R in it. Same with dhamma and dharma. Dharma with an R, and I'm, I'm not good at saying my R, so I have to exaggerate it. Dharma um, is Sanskrit, and dhamma is uh, the Pali. So I often will use the Pali. A new understanding of karma, which was a, a teaching a belief at the time that the Buddha lived. He lived in a world where... Uh, People um, had strong ideas about karma, but his um, unique reframing, re-understanding of how karma actually works is he said it was about intentional action. That's what shapes a karmic unfolding. And this has powerful implications because at the time, and you could even say today, people either believed that everything was predetermined deterministic model, fatalistic you could say, or random. There was no rhyme or reason why things happened. And the Buddha said no to both of those. Both of those were not true but there is a lawful nature to this unfolding. We can start to understand these processes, not in any discrete, oh, this means that, this leads to that, but the big themes that are, that are unfolding, the big picture, um, so we can start to see kind of trends and understand the implications for ourselves. So it's not a fatalistic teaching, and it's certainly not one of blame or judgment, but really one of empowerment. And Guy will talk more about that tomorrow. But uh, I see how all of these three, again, are just facets of the same pointing, facets of the same kind of teaching, where mindfulness is the key component. Because when mindfulness, especially sammasati, wise mindfulness, right mindfulness is operating, we have the potential for choice that gap point that moment of clarity that moment of connection with what's happening where wisdom can potentially come in and that those choices were shaping the mindstream and this is the comic unfolding but we can be participants in that we are not the helpless victims of karma And as the Buddha said, something like, whatever one frequently thinks and dwells upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. We start to recognize that these forces and conditions and thoughts and emotions shape us. And most of the time, unconscious, we're just sort of pushed and pulled by our emotional life, by our experience. But bringing mindfulness into the picture makes a radical change in how we can respond and relate to what's happening. And then, as I said, this potential for wise responses. Mindfulness develops more wisdom. And so mindfulness becomes a skillful means where we actually pay close attention to our direct experience so we can learn from it. We become our own best guide and teacher through our direct experience, through the mindfulness. And this close paying of attention to what's happening on all these different levels, the six dense stores, all of these things, can do this other functioning of mindfulness in the Buddha's teaching, which if you look at what he's doing all the time, he's deconstructing experience. He's, He's dissecting it into its constituent constituent parts so we can see how it's shaped and formed. Because if we don't do that, it's overwhelming, right? Things are happening so fast, we feel at the mercy and we're pushed and pulled. But he's he's always saying, and therefore we are always saying, stop, slow down, pay attention, see moment to moment what's happening here. And we talk about things like the five aggregates, These places where, in our experience, where we identify and cling and thereby create a sense of self and suffering. Breaking it down, deconstructing. The teaching of dependent origination is a brilliant deconstruction of how ignorance leads to suffering. We talk about discrete mental factors, the wholesome and skillful ones and the ones that lead us into suffering. Know them, see them. We use practices like rain. Recognize, accept, become more intimate, see it as nature. This is all part of bringing these teachings together. The mindfulness allowing the clear seeing, the deconstructing, seeing its component, conditioned parts, and from that, finding more wisdom. Because it's only when we see truly and clearly, at least as truly and clearly as we are able, that we can begin the process of unwinding of transformation, of finding more freedom and well-being. So everything that I've said so far is also true of intentions, which form the heart of the teachings on karma, form and shape our lives, really. Um, And we've talked a little bit about uh, intention, certainly working with it as a mental factor that we can know. It's considered to be a universal mental factor, so it means it's arising in every moment and having an effect. But we bring mindfulness to that process, that functioning of intention, and all kinds of um, new ways of being, of seeing, and of choices open up to us. So tonight I want to kind of weave these together by particularly talking about three kinds of intention in the Buddha's teachings and how they're all really important um, for us to bring into awareness and to see how they impact the unfolding of our experience and certainly the unfolding of a path of practice, the Buddha's teachings, the Eightfold Path, central to anything we do, but particularly to our spiritual life and path. And they operate on different time frames. Again, you know, the the brilliance of the Buddha in in, um, his teachings that are both immediate and clear and then vast. So the first of this kind of intention is the one we've talked about um, and offered as a a potential meditation object. Chaitana is the Pali word usually translated as intention, sometimes volition, and it, it's that moment-to-moment kind of intention that I've already mentioned. But a second kind of intention, and again, we, in English we use the word broadly to mean aspiration, motivation, etc., so I'm using intention in that way tonight, is what we in Pali is aditana, And this is one of the paramis, It's usually translated as resolve or determination, but it has that same functioning of shaping the mind in action. So aditana as a parami, um, setting the direction for our intentions. And then on the biggest scale, samasankapa, wise intention, which is the second of the path factors in the eightfold path. And this is... Samasankhapa is usually translated as wise intention, sometimes as wise thought, but I think it's better as intention. And this is the expression of wisdom. The first path factor is lot of lists tonight, I'm sorry about that, but first path factor is wise view or wise understanding, seeing things clearly, for noble truths. And this is how the wise heart acts out of wise view, with wise intention. And these are the three intentions towards renunciation, towards non-harming, and non-ill will. These are considered to be the wisest intentions. So these three levels of intention, but they're not a linear list. I was really, again, thinking about this, how to, I like to kind of imagine if I had a power, I'd love to do a PowerPoint, but I don't have one kind of like a triangle, right? They're all supporting and feeding each other. You can see the triangle could be shaped with the tip at the bottom, all resting on the tip of intention, as the Tibetans often say. Everything rests on the tip of intention. But it's kind of a stretchy triangle. You know, sometimes they are a little linear. Sometimes one of the other ones is more what's, what's forming and shaping us, and the other two are, are just feeding and supporting that. So again, don't get into You know, it looks this one way. They're always um, revolving, supporting each other. And all important. So this first factor, chetana, volitional actions, um, we talked about it at the beginning of the retreat too, as what got you here. You know, this intention to come on a month or two retreat, it's a powerful intention. All of the things that that put into play All of the actions and plans and resources and advice and and support that you got to do this, right? So, what got us here? And it's also what keeps us going. And I know, having, you know, talking to so many of you, how it can weaken at times. What am I doing here? Why did I think this was a good idea? To keep refreshing, what is it that we're, you know, we wouldn't be here. You know, Because we can get confused. Oh, I shouldn't have a goal. Oh, I, there shouldn't be no I. So I, the not me, shouldn't have a goal. Well, then what are we doing here? Yes, we have intention and aspiration for this mind stream to you know, become more kind, to wake up. So it's what keeps us going as we keep in touch with that. And there's a way you can see all of us here Or on our own archetypal journey, you know, the the heroine, the hero's journey where we set out from our nest, our safety, our home onto this great adventure. We have the the call for truth, the quest for, for truth, however that speaks to us. And we set out, right? You all drove or walked or got a bus or a shuttle or something, you know, landing here at Spirit Rock. And here you've been tested. Challenged. You, you've had, you know, the, the wild woods that you've had to walk through and the chasms that you've, you've forded and the aids and support and the ogres that leaped out from behind dark corners and all of that. Yet you kept going, right? Because you're still here. And it, for those of you that are getting closer to the end of the retreat, this, this journey is not over yet. You know, we're always tested at the last moment when we least expect it. Yet we keep going, right? Because we have that sincerity of intention. And we can't stop now. The dumb, I'm afraid to tell you the dharma hook has got in. You know, once you sit this long a retreat, it's really hard to close. No, I don't want to wake up. No, who cares about more wisdom and compassion? Not for me. It's like, you know, I don't know what form it will take, but something has awakened in you. Some light is shining in you that it's really hard to turn off. So it's said that this um, mental factor of intention, Chaitana, volitional action, forms the heart of karma. And why the Buddha's teaching was so different, he said it was intentional actions, actions that we do with some degree of knowledge. And so, you know, just simple example, going for a walk, enjoying the view, and maybe you step on an ant or something. You don't know it, you didn't intend it. It said that that has no karmic result. But we do something with intention, and that does have a karmic unfolding. So the Buddha cared more about this second category. What are the intentions that are shaping us? Body, speech, and mind, all of them have a karmic imprint bring those into our awareness, and then we can begin to transform them. Because literally nothing happens without intention. We don't make a gesture, don't blink our eyes. All of these levels don't happen. And it's a universal mental factor, so it's happening all the time. But most of the time we're oblivious. We're just running on the streams of conditioned patterns and habits. And so there is no uh, place for change in that. But again, with mindfulness, we start to wake up. We start to understand these forces shaping ourselves and can begin to respond with more wisdom. And so we look at that quality in the mind and the heart, what's actually happening in those moments of, of small gestures. Again, you know, a lot of what I'm saying is... A, Applying here to us in intensive practice, but similar things happen uh, in the world because there's these there's the intention before every action to reach, to stop, to turn to to um, open a door for someone, and it's influencing us whether we know it or not. so our practice is to bring this more into consciousness. Our dear friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein, says she always asks herself before she does something, especially something significant, to what end? You know, what is my purpose here? What am I hoping to cultivate, develop? And we see what happens in our lives in the areas where we have clear intention and those where we don't, right? You might have a vague idea that you want to do something, you know, to choose non-spiritual things like learn a language or some particular skill. If it's just a nice idea, I'd really like to learn Italian. I, like, I had that idea, I think, 10 years ago. It hasn't happened. You know why? Because I didn't keep up the motivation that it would take to do that. It takes constantly reaffirming and clarifying and acting on that intention unless we get really clear and keep working on all these three levels of intention it doesn't ha- i i can say hello and goodbye i think but it doesn't happen and in saying all this of course we realize we don't control everything karma doesn't say that there are many forces at work here that are outside the reach of karma So again, it's not a system of blame or justifying or deserving good or bad. It's not about that. But really, um, looking at our own minds and hearts and what we can understand, where we can learn from and change in our own minds and hearts. So often, um, as we come towards the end of a period of practice, you know there's all these questions about taking the practice home and will for those of you who are leaving in a few days we'll certainly be talking about this but i get that question a lot it's always after the retreat how do i fill in the blank and it's often have a daily practice people kind of think if i was a good buddhist i would sit every day you know if i was sincere about my practice that's what it would look like and i always say it's not going to happen cuz you think it's a good idea It's not going to happen because you wish it happens. Um, It's certainly not going to happen if you're doing it like a medicine. I don't like it, but it's good for me. I should do it. It's really got to come from some heart space that connects to that as an expression of what you value, and you do it out of that. So the vision and aspiration of what you value and then reaffirming the intention over and over again over and over again then the actions can come out of that they don't come out of wishful thinking I know for myself when I first uh, got in touch with the dhamma actually I, I was living in India I'd been there for about six or almost a year at that point um and I read a book, you know, how many of you started trying to teach yourself from a book? I know I did, Jack's book, Living Buddhist Masters, I wouldn't recommend it, but anyway, um, I know I'd recommend it as a book, not to try and teach yourself Buddhism and how to practice from, it was a little, little dry. Anyway, I did discover, I got, someone said, if you want to learn to meditate, go to a retreat with Goenkaji, S.N. Goenka. So I did. I made my way down. You know, it's a long story about that. I didn't know where this retreat was. It was in Jaipur. I was living in Macleod. I just went there and thought if I asked enough people, I'd find. And I did. I asked a lot of people. And they finally said, you go to that place at this time and a bus will take you. And I got there. And it was amazing. You know, it was incredibly intense. Uh, you know, who was talking about taking a pillow to a retreat? I didn't even have a pillow. You know, it was a concrete floor, and I think I had a folded towel or something. It was, my body was racked with pain. Um, I didn't, when I look back, I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. After the retreat, someone talked about mindfulness and in the in-between times. They don't teach walking meditation in Goenka retreats, but they talked about, you know, just maintain. And I said, what? You meant to do that? Like I was just thinking the whole time when I wasn't trying trying to meditate like this. But anyway, after that retreat, you know, I was amazed. Something touched me. You know, I just, you know, to to see that there was a possibility of reducing harm and not causing suffering to myself and to others. It was like a radical concept hadn't ever occurred to me before. I remember someone saying, oh, you know, yeah, this is so powerful. I tried to do one or two retreats a year. And I remember thinking so arrogant, oh, one or two, one a month. I'll be just like, this is it for me. And it, it's not that easy, right? You, you know, we have a life. But that was the beginning, that first retreat in India where I was totally clueless. Something shifted in me. And then from then on, all the major decisions of my life were how to stay closer to the Dharma. And a, a similar thing happened. I, uh, after I left India, I went to England. I done it, did a number of other retreats, m- eventually meeting up with Christopher Titmus in Bodhgaya, James Barras, one of my early teachers. I sit here today because of James' a retreat in Bodhgaya. Um, but when I landed in England, Christopher has a retreat center there, and I, I wanted to go there. So these are in the days, this is the... Early 80s, where we had to use what's called a poster restante. Most people in this room probably don't even know what that is. I, my young niece from Australia visited us a few years ago and she told us that as she got off the plane here in San Francisco, she was texting her mother in Australia I've arrived, I'm here, Sally's picking me up. My sister and I lived for a year and a half in India. I think we spoke by phone twice in that time. You know, we were just relying on these. So even in London, I was in England, I was relying on these mail drops at big post offices. But I heard about the retreat, I wrote to the people there, again, I wrote, I put a letter in the mail, and I said, I'd really like to come to this retreat. I got to the post restaurant sometime later and I got this letter that said, great, there's a retreat starting this weekend, you can come. Like, I was so happy and I changed all my plans, and backpack on, got on a, you know, a, a tube, a subway, and then the big train, and then a bus, and the bus actually, you know, from Salisbury out to this little town, Wiley in Wiltshire, and he drops me off, the bus stopped, And I look around, there's nothing there. He says, and I look back at the drive, he goes, oh, you just walk that way. And again, it's like, I had no idea where I was going. There's this little path and some styles. I see some houses in the distance. I walk there, it's this little village of Wiley, tiny, tiny, again, asking people, where is this place? And they direct me to the edge of the village And I I do find the place. I'm like so relieved. I've made it. For me, it was a big trip, very expensive. After India, like England was so expensive. Um, And I walk in and it seems kind of quiet for a retreat starting. You know, the hubbub you had on the first day of everyone arriving? Not happening. There's a guy working on a car out in the kind of parking area in front of this big old farmhouse. And he kind of looks up at me with this concerned look and he says you've come for the retreat, haven't you? I'm like, have they heard about me? You know, did my reputation precede me? And they're like, oh no, we shouldn't have let her come. I'm like, well, yes. He goes, you better go inside. And I go inside and these people are bustling about everywhere. There's just a handful of people. And they all stop and look at me. Have you come for the retreat? (laughs) Yes. And they say, that letter was sent two weeks ago. The retreat started last weekend and it finished today. So we're all, Oh, you're so sweet. (laughs) It finished today. And not only did the retreat finish today, but normally we have managers who run the house and take care of it between retreats and sometimes people stay, but we're in between managers. Everyone is packing up and leaving and we're closing the whole place down for two weeks until the new managers can get here. You'll have to leave, turn around. I was devastated. You know, again, it was like late, getting in the late afternoon. I'm there, with my backpack was a huge trip to come down. You know, it was like my heroine's journey, right? You know, over all these different places. And they say no room at the inn. You have to leave. Oh, I was, and I didn't know where to. I didn't even know, really know where I was. Where would I go? I had no guidebook, no internet to look. You know, what's around or anything. So I just, they said, we'll sit down and have a cup of tea. And they all went off doing their thing. Sometime later, w- one or two of them came back and they said, you know, we've thought about this. And though we really should, you know, our plan was to close the place up. We've decided that you can stay here and take care of it until the new managers come. <laughs> Again, they didn't know me from anyone. Um, and instead of being sent away they kind of gave me the keys to the palace, this beautiful country farmhouse, big agar stove, you know, these, they heat and cook, and a pantry full of food, and beautiful, it was like heaven, it was one of these stories, you know, up, down, up, down, so I, I stayed there, and I practiced, and I walked, and it was just, and of course, what did my mind do? How can I stay? I love this. You know, Can I be a manager? What's a manager? Can I be a manager? So when they all come back, I'm like, can I be a manager? I'll, I'll be really good. I'll do everything. And they're like, no, we don't need you. We don't. I'm like, again, I had to leave. But I put my name on the list to be a manager and went off. I met my boyfriend at the time, and we traveled. And then I got another letter that said, you can come be a manager. And I was like, I'm going. And I said goodbye to my boyfriend. He said, don't you want to go to Czechoslovakia? I'm like, no. I want, to go. I want to go back to the Dharma. And so I did and became was a manager there at that retreat center, East Farmhouse. It's where I met Guy. And not long after that... <laughs> I'm winding out this story. I didn't think I'd tell this long, but anyway but we just met there uh, we didn't you know he was on retreat i was managing but we got to know each other a little um, and then i at that ended and i had the choice again to go traveling but another invitation came to start a meditation community and again i had to say no to this friend we we're going to go to ireland or somewhere i said no i want to go where the dhamma people are i want to go where the dhamma is and so i let a few of these people down my friend my boyfriend at the time and left and said no and went and started Sharpam. And who should happen to start Sharpam with me? Oh. The two of us there in the top floor of this Georgian mansion, that's where we got together. So <laughs> I guess I tell this story just the intention was with all of this <laughs> was how do I stay connected to the Dharma, around Dhamma people, serving the Dhamma. And I've never regretted a moment of what those intentions brought to me. Not always easy, a lot of challenges, but seeing the power of that initial atten- intention from that retreat and how it just shaped those decisions. And I could go on and on with that story, but it, 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 that's what I was so clear that that was what was important to me. And you know, we did different things, worked in different places, but there was always like, how do we stay? So we ended up living in Woodacre, because it's near Spirit Rock. We really love living here. So a whole, my whole life really, out of that contact with the Dharma and that uh, intention. So that, as I've talked about that, that was working on a lot of these different levels of intention so you see how they're all kind of shaping each other because the next level that I want to talk about is aditana, And this is one of the paramis that's usually translated as determination or resolve, but can also be aspirational motivation. It's all in this same field of taking our mind stream and shaping it in a certain way, having a sense of, and again, intention, where we want to end up and creating the qualities, the forces, empowering that, that aspect of our being. So this is one of the paramis, paramis of loving-kindness, of generosity, um, of truthfulness, of renunciation. Aditana, determination, resolve, strong intention is one of these paramis. And we've been practicing this very clearly, this whole retreat. As we practice in the Brahmaviharas, the phrases, the metaphrases, we call them adhitanas. May I, may I be happy, may I be joyful, may I open to this suffering. These are aditanas. they're resolves. And you perhaps know, if you didn't know before, the power of them to shape your heart and mind. Have you felt the power of the Brahmavihara practice, even in its struggle and its challenge, to shape the mind and heart, through these adhitanas, through these resolves. And I love that we frame them as may I. It's not, you know, it's not an order. It's not do this now. But we put our heart upon, right? We set this direction. We open to our highest aspiration for ourselves. And this is, uh, and then we give the impetus. We keep moving in that direction. And it shapes as I said, the heart and mind, through this clarity of intention. And so this determinational resolve is what keeps us going. So the intention is the moment to moment. The determination resolve is the engine that carries that out. Because we'll all have difficulties, right? Challenges, the heroine's journey. In our life, in our practice, in our spiritual life, we are going against the stream here, right? We're going against the cultural conditioning that many of us have. So it needs this, you know, it's like backbone. It needs this resolve or determination, not forcing, not um, rigid, but this strength of clarity of mind and heart. Aaron read a beautiful um, poem last night from the Terigata. That's the v- verses of the enlightened nuns. Their songs of awakening. There's a, a companion volume, the Teragata, the songs of the awakened monks. And so this is one um, that sort of speaks to this quality mental factor of resolve. See if you relate. It's too cold. It's too hot. Too late in the evening. People who say this, shirking their work and by work at spiritual development, the moment passes them by. Whoever regards cold and heat as no more than grass, doing their duties won't fall away from ease. With my chest, I push through the wild grasses, spear grass, ribbon grass, rushes, cultivating a secluded heart. So that sense of the clarity of intention, moving through the difficulties. Yes, there are difficulties, but this resolve that keeps us going, um, keeps us strong. And then this is another thing the Buddha says about resolve. These are the four resolves, the resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom, One should preserve truth, should cultivate generosity and should train in peace. So all these ways we can set these intentions and the resolve is what keeps us moving in that direction, shaping us. Which leads to the last of these intentions, which is the biggest picture one. Samasankapa, wise intention, the second path factor in the eightfold path. And again, they're Dharma values that we align with and cultivate as we practice. As we deepen in wisdom, in mindfulness, this is the natural response of a wise heart to renunciation, to non-ill will, and to harmlessness. And it's interesting that they're kind of framed in the negative, but there's a real skill to that, because it's pointing to that it's always possible to refrain. We can't always feel metta. There's no metta switch, as I always say. But we can uh, cultivate non-ill will and certainly not acting out of ill will. We can have this sense of restraint. Same with harmlessness, um, non-harming. The, the positive is compassion, a beautiful quality, but we can certainly um, maintain non-harming and build on that. So this is the big picture of how intention and wise intention can shape our actions in our life. First is renunciation, which I did a whole talk about because it's so important as a spiritual value, as, as a parami, as a source of contentment and happiness, not as a penance. You know, this is not that we should give everything up, but really this alignment with what's for our well-being, What's for our true happiness? And exploring that as deeply and sincerely as we can. Beyond, you know, what society tells us makes for happiness, material possessions, success, worldly kind of um, attainments. I saw this story a while ago in the Parade magazine. You know, it's this little kind of cultural magazine that comes, used to come, we don't get it anymore with our paper, so I don't read it, but. It used to have some good stories in it. And one of the articles was called Why We Gave Away Our Home. And it talked about a family who had their dream home. And what's a dream home? It's huge, right? So they each had their own rooms and probably an entertainment room and a basement and a, what do they call it, a, a recreation room or I don't know what they had. Um, but they each went their separate ways, right? Into video games and movies and the internet, whatever they were doing. And they got unhappier and unhappier and more and more disconnected as they lived in this dream home. One day, the young girl of the family read some um, article about the disparities, poverty, uh, wealth disparities, inequality, got really upset. And so the mother said to her, what are you willing to sacrifice to do something about this? Your house, your room, And the article said, Hannah said yes to both. After talking it over as a family, they decided to sell their big house and move to one that was half its size and price and donate the difference to charity. So it took a year for them to decide what to do with the money. And in that process, they learned about each other and they grew closer together as they found shared values and commitments. And they chose the Hunger Project a US based nonprofit that works with villagers in Africa, Asia, and South America and helps them move from poverty to self reliance. And they say it was the best move they ever made. They're more connected, they understand each other, and it tr- transformed their family lives to give up that dream house. So for us, as we leave the retreat, for some of us, all of us eventually, what do we pick up again? You're, you've lived these weeks, you are living these many weeks in this single room, simple room, I should say, simple room. Every, all you have is what you brought with you, yet taken care of everything you need. Really interesting to see what the mind brings in to that space of simplicity. And the next form of intention that shapes, we can consciously cultivate to shape our hearts and minds is that towards non-ill will. Not acting out of ill will towards ourselves and others. And again, the positive uh, manifestation of that is goodwill or metta. I could say a lot about this. We've talked a lot about the metta practice, but really to point to the um, essential practice of meta for self, that this is really where we can transform our hearts, and if we can shift in that direction of more kindness and more caring for ourselves, that will naturally lead out into kind actions for others because we'll have more empathy, more understanding. And so to really use this practice, this intention to understand our minds and hearts, how they're conditioned, and to see what would it be like to truly love and accept myself just as I am. This is a, an intention and a path of practice that's deep and profound because we feel the pain of the judgment and the negative self-talk, the critical mind, the closed heart, the lack of self-acceptance it 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 really is one of the greatest sources of pain in so many people that I talk to, so really important for us to examine that tendency of mine. I know James talked about it because it is so important. We use our mindfulness practice to understand what's going on there again, deconstructing that constructed experience or constructed idea of not being good enough, not being okay. Judgments are just thoughts in the mind. They're just patterns that we've created over time and through our conditioning. There's a book I really like um, that that talks about bringing this into our spiritual practice called Soul Without Shame by Byron Brown. And he says, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judge. So it's a practice of bringing this kind mindfulness to this process and seeing that this is deep and profound work that we can do. We can shift from a sense of ill will towards ourselves to great love, tenderness, and acceptance, then that can express itself out into the world. And then the last of these um, profound intentions is that towards harmlessness, non-harming. And again, it's uh, initially framed as acts of restraints, not harming. Um, and that's following the precepts, which are you know usually talked about, not taking what's not offered, non-harming, not taking intoxicants, not speaking that which is not true, harmful, refraining from harmful speech. But in that refraining, we give and receive great gifts, we give others the gift of fearlessness. They don't have to be afraid of us. They can trust us because they know we won't hurt them. We'll act with the, with the best intentions we can. And we give ourselves a gift of freedom from remorse. The Buddha talked again and again about this, the joy, the bliss of blamelessness, the joy of non-harming. And really to see, again, these are not separate, you know, just out in the world. As the mind settles in this way of not agitated by reviewing our actions, regret and remorse, meditation settles and deepens more possibility of of, um, calm and stillness. Albert Einstein says that the ideals which have lighted my way and time after time given me new courage to face life cheerfully have been kindness, beauty and truth just this expression of kindness towards all beings. So we follow the precepts, not killing, stealing, harming others through our sexuality or ourselves, wise speech and refraining from clouding the mind with drugs and intoxicants. And of course the positive expression is compassion, which we've also been practicing here, this natural response of the connected heart when it meets suffering, whether it's ourselves or others. Your hearts are very tender now, these weeks of practice. We have to take good care of these hearts. If you've ever used a heart rate monitor, I like to exercise and will sometimes use them. You'll see, you know, they obviously register when you're exercising, but if you're sitting still and you lift your arm, your heart responds immediately to move the blood around to make that action possible. This is the responsive heart. So the physical heart but the compassionate heart is the same, tender, responsive. So again, some tenderness around the tenderness of all of our hearts at the moment. We're all sensitive beings. So uh, to uh, conclude what I really wanted to point to was how for our intentions and aspirations to truly unfold in alignment with what we really, truly wish for, we need to pay attention to all these three levels of intention. They're all important at different ways, at different times, but keeping them all in view. The moment-to-moment, chaitanya that's always functioning, bringing that more into highlight. Aditana, determination, is kind of the engine that keeps that moving forward, actually shapes how the actions um, happen. And then Samasankapa, wise intention, the big picture of what are these dharma values that we can align to? What will bring more freedom and happiness into our lives and the lives of those uh, we meet. And so they're all feeding and supporting each other. Again, I was thinking images, you know, they call them Rube Goldberg machines, those things they set up and they're getting crazier and crazier with the ball or something rolling through these tubes and drops and things, and it all has to unfold. And if one place deviates, it doesn't happen, right? It really is this way for um, our practice. If if we drop one of these aspects, we don't get to our intended destination. And again, like it's not like, oh, it doesn't happen. We start again, right? Wherever we are. This is the moment-to-moment part. Always starting new. Always starting fresh. Em- empowered by the mindfulness that sees clearly. that connects with our experience. We bring our experience into mindfulness. We connect with it and see deeply and clearly what's happening in this mind and heart and start to understand, bringing the wisdom in, the wise response. Again, I started with Facebook. I'll end with Facebook. Um, (laughs) Dustin Moskovitz, who was one of the founders of Facebook, is really into practice now it's great you know you know the tech industry is they're using it you know secular mindfulness could have a whole conversation about that but i think he's very serious about his practice he said mindfulness has helped me succeed in almost every dimension of my life by stopping regularly to look inward and become aware of my mental state I stay connected to the source of my actions and thoughts and can guide, them with, can guide them with considerably more intention. So just that feedback loop, always. The mindfulness, we're in touch. We know what's happening. Out of that, seeing what actions come and what's shaping them and seeing how there's a loop. In that, there's conditioning, It's ultimately impersonal in the sense that it's operating under these natural laws that Aaron spoke about this morning. There's a sense of self in that, and there is intention shaping intention, so there is process here, but there's no solid self at the heart of this. But it is this constant shaping, these constant loops that are happening. Again, Sharon Salzberg says... By making an effort to notice our intentions with honesty and clarity, we gain a great deal of freedom. If we take the time to pay quiet attention through meditation or contemplation, we may develop a completely different understanding of why we do the things we do and a new perspective on how to trust that we've done the best we can. When we develop the habit of noticing our intentions, we have a much better compass with which to navigate our lives. We learn to cast a glance at our motivation before we speak or act, which frees us to live the life that we want. All feeding each other the mindfulness, the intention, the action, the honesty, the integrity, the kindness, the aspiration. And I'll end just with a quote from Padma Sambhava. He was a Tibetan saint who pu- pulls this together with this saying, my view, and he means kind of his big perspective of everything, my view is as vast as the sky, but my action and respect for the laws of karma are as fine as a grain of sampa flower, as fine as the finest grain. So the big picture, what, what, what are our biggest sense of aspiration, possibility, and yet knowing that that's shaped moment to moment by our hearts, movements, actions. So we pay attention. We pay attention again and again. Let's just let the words settle into into, into kindness, into silence. And thank you for your attention. Perhaps you might form the intention to come back for the uh, evening sit with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.